0: You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss
1: all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL
0: fullback, Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Discovering Multifamily podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony Scandariato with Red Knight Properties. And boy, do we have a treat for you today. We have Kim Bayes and she is the founder of Exponential Property Group. She oversees how many units now? Almost 5,000?
0: We've got about 3,000 right now, but we've uh, owned about over 9,000 over the course of the past
1: 11 years. Bought and sold. So she's been through at least one cycle, which is awesome. So we're going to talk to her about where she thinks we are now and what she's planning to do to mitigate risk for her and her investors. Mm-hmm. And you know, she's been, like you said, doing this for 11 years and basically grew from two employees to more than 160 employees. So, I'm assuming you have property management uh, in your in the we division do. as well. Uh, we could talk a little bit about that because that's pretty unique. That's not something every real estate operator has. We have it too, but love to hear a little bit more about that. And she has some really interesting case studies on a few deals that she's bought. Repositioned and then sold and then kind of. I'm assuming recycled capital and
0: recycled capital yeah. into the next ones. yes. Yep. So,
1: yeah. so um, that's. I'm assuming that's how she grew her portfolio. But I want to hear it from you. So let's hear it. How did you start out, Kim? Um, what was your upbringing like, and ha- how did you get to where you were today?
0: Well, so my my dad's an entrepreneur. He owned a um, powdered metal manufacturing company and a sales business. So uh, kind of used to that philosophy growing up, I suppose, but was a finance major from University of Iowa and went into the retirement plan world for a little while and then decided I was ready for something new and kind of went into single single family real estate for a bit. And then 11 years ago, went into multifamily real estate. So um, bought that first property that was uh You know, a small, simple deal, only two employees, was on site most of the time myself working out of one of the units upstairs because the the manager was really much more focused on like leasing and eviction court and that sort of thing. And so a lot of the back end paperwork piece was still kind of our stuff. Um, Closely oversaw all the renovations on that and sold that uh, after about 15 months and 1031 into a bigger one. Um, That was 244 units and that one was quite the adventure. It was only 50% occupied when we bought it. Uh, But one of the big things that came out of buying that property is because we had so many units to renovate and the extent of the renovations that were needed, um, we had uh, actually some investors, an investor that was a Chinese national, her husband's American. Um, She'd been here a long time, but they actually went over with us to China um, to source some of the materials that we were going to need for the renovation. And so um, at that time, it was just only stuff for our own properties and everything was being stored in vacant units on site because we had lots of lots of available space. So we at one point had a unit full of vinyl plank flooring that was up to my head, over my head, I guess, um, just stacked boxes, you know, in every in every square corner. So um, over time that's really grown and that has been huge especially during COVID, we've created really a, a materials, it's import and export, but also um, primarily just sourcing and logistics and so that's been really huge for us during COVID, being able to have the access to those materials, having a warehouse ready to go so that we were able to continue executing all of our business plans during that time. So, so that business applies for us, but also about 300 other uh,
1: multifamily owners throughout yeah, that area right. too. Right. And, th- and let's take it back a second. So the first property you bought so, how many units was that? You said 200 and so something. Was,
0: no, it was the first one was 77 units, and the second okay, one was uh, 244. Okay. So
1: you're, so, you're buying, so you must have been buying single SFR, single family rentals in bulk, right? I'm assuming. No, no, or the, the original ones
0: um, were it was actually separate. There were seven single family houses back before I ever got into multifamily. Um, okay. But then the first multifamily was 77 units, and then we turned 31 out of that one into the 244, and that was the one that was. 50% vacant when we took over and uh, most of the clientele there was not fantastic. So it actually had to drop a little bit further before we got to a place where we were renovating and, and leasing units. But sure. um, that sort of was the, was the need that started the material sourcing business. And um, it's been pretty instrumental and part of the kind of more unique pieces of our, our vertical integration. Um, sure. I think there's quite a few people that have in-house management and we do as well. You know, a lot of people use third party, but there are quite a few that have in-house management. But I think the The extra pieces of the vertical integration in the interior renovation space and in the materials sourcing and logistics space and our graphics design and branding piece has really helped to control costs and enable us to do more with less for our investors.
1: Yeah, it definitely gives you a competitive advantage, I'm I'm assuming, uh, uh, you know, outside of. Like you mentioned, a lot of other real estate operators. So that's that's awesome. So um, that first deal you did was that you know what syndicated deal where you brought on other investors and then you did a ten thirty one. I know that's hard. Uh, so yeah. I'm assuming you set up a tenant in common uh, from the beginning and then
0: no, this was actually not a tenants in common. Um, it was a syndicated deal on the first one, but there were only six passive investors and oh, it was nothing. like less than half of the capital. So it's pretty easy to get like you know I guess there were eight of us collectively to all agree on the same the same general strategy after only 15 months has passed. That that was a pretty easy one. Uh, We haven't been able to do, we did a couple 1031s towards the beginning and then yes, you're you're correct. By the time we had hundreds of investors in some of the portfolios, um, that is just probably more cats to herd than really works well for for a true 1031 scenario. So um, for the most part, just been distributing the capital whenever we sell and finish executing the business plan and then have a new subscription
1: available for them to reinvest if they'd like to. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, we call that churn and burn <laughs> recycling capital, whether that's sure. uh refinance or sale, um, that that both those types of events have at least for us has happened, and then we were able to present a new opportunity. Um, it's always absolutely. good to, to have that. Um, so okay, so start with the 76 unit, you 1031 into a two hundred you know, plus unit. And then I'm assuming you probably sold that and then you moved into something else. actually, um, while we were still finishing the
0: lease up on that one, we bought a 444 unit property. And that was the first one that was, was a bigger um, syndication as far as more partners. It was still not a huge, huge number, but getting to be more and more. And then um, over time, it's just grown from there. So we, we actually have some offerings. Uh, We just finished a $70 million capital raise recently that has 300 unique investors in it. So, so, um, all right. So,
1: so, so let's take it back. So three, like for that, you had 300 investors in it. I'm assuming Maybe it was a 506B, maybe? It was a 506B, yeah. Okay, um, so you have a distribution list of and probably active, how many active investors do you have?
0: Active, we're probably right about 600 now.
1: Okay, so that makes sense. Um, and like you said, you've been at least almost a decade in this in this business. So um, yeah. for those listening, it does, add, all the hard work does add up. And, you know, Kev is obviously a case study for it. So um, have you ever... Uh, It's like, what's your, what's your, you know, business plan? I'm assuming uh, most of the properties are where I forgot to ask you, Texas.
0: Um, We're we're all in Texas. Um, Historically Dallas Fort Worth market um, been huge players here for the entire time. And then also added the Houston market
1: about a year ago. Okay. And then, so you're pretty local to the markets where you invest in, which is, which is great. And you happen to be in a hot, you know, a a good hot market with a lot of, um, you know, I would say a lot of inventory compared to other markets in the country. So, you know, almost consider yourself fortunate for that.
0: Uh, Very, very fortunate to be and have found myself in this area. This has been a great place to do business. Texas is a very business friendly state, which is hugely important to me and what I do. I think that's probably when we talk about risk mitigation here in a few minutes. That's that's a big piece of it for sure, Um, like that we're here local and able to handle whatever needs to come up and whatever does come up. But very fortunate that I landed here somewhere where there's lots of jobs and lots of growth and lots of new population and everything at all the time.
1: Yeah. They almost can't handle the amount of population coming in. They just weren't expecting that th- this much, um, which is good because then you have it jacks up the price. Supply and the demand. Best, but yeah. Supply and demand. So um, I guess, so you have over, she th- said 300 employees. No, we're, we're at about
0: 170 employees, oh, I think, okay. right at the moment.
1: Okay, so 170 employees. So I'm assuming 90% of that is property management?
0: Um, Actually, probably about 65, 60 to 65% of that is property management. Then we also have our own um, construction team in-house that's all okay. direct employees that does all of our interior renovations. And we've got the materials supply and graphic design sides of the business. So some, some bodies there too, and then you know all of the people kind of in headquarters trying to support all the folks in the field, trying to make sure everything gets
1: done. So accounting team and, and others. Okay. So when you did your first deal, it sounds like, I mean, you were on site. I mean, it sounds like you learned the business kind of from the ground up. So I'm sure you've been involved in every single facet of the, of the business um, at at one point in time, what's your focus now moving forward and how important is that for, you know, the CEO of, you know, your company to kind of have been around so you understand but they're going through and you, and you make decisions sure. and um, so what are you focusing on now like I
0: trying to focus mostly role. kind of on strategy in general um, you know overarching targets and goals. Um, a big focus of mine is sort of the heart of the business and trying to make sure that we stay an organization that genuinely cares about all of the people that the organization is touching whether they, um, the on-site team members, people in headquarters, all of the residents out on the properties and then also our investors. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people involved in this game. Yeah. And so um, that's kind of a big focus of mine. So definitely do some in terms of networking with uh, potential investors and those sorts of pieces do a lot of blessing, the final spreadsheets and touring properties on offers and things that we acquire, um, you know, definitely involved still, cause my, my background was finance with manners in accounting and economics. So definitely still a little bit involved in the accounting pieces of it, trying not to be day to day, but um, yeah. Definitely, terms of in terms of general strategy and and where where you shuffle from one set of funds from the other kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So uh, right now we're we're recording this in Q two of twenty twenty two. Are you a buyer or a seller or is it both or kind of deal by deal specific? Um,
0: we're definitely buying more now. I mean, it, it is hard to find the things that work at the moment, and you have to have a bit of an optimistic viewpoint um, to really do that. But we did sell and transact and recapitalize a lot of our portfolio last year. Um, the, the tax increase threats were enough to make me, um, definitely look hard at what assets we had, whether or not we wanted to hold those long-term. We were fortunate that we had a bunch of assets that were kind of at that, at that decision point in terms of ready for refinance. We'd executed the business plan for the most part. And so trying to decide which ones to keep, which ones to sell, um, you know, where refinancing or recapitalizing made sense. So we did a ton of transactions, um, both buy side, sell side, recap side, uh, in the past between June of last year and February of this year was a particularly busy time. So at this point, don't have anything that's seasoned out to a point where we're really wanting to sell it. We are really happy with the portfolio that we have currently. Um, and then, you know, definitely looking to add where and when we can find stuff that actually works and makes sense and hits the targets that we have for our investors.
1: Sure. So I guess to that point, um, how many deals like new deals, at least target do you do each year? Um,
0: it kind of varies based on, it, it's always an ebb and flow between finding deals and finding capital and getting that balance right. Um, but I think this year we'll probably try to acquire another three to five if we're able to find things that work and make sense and are a good fit for our investor base. Um we've had as many as about 5,000 units at a single time before. And I think we're very well structured for about that size or a bit more at this point in time. So kind of getting back to that, to that place, um, is sort of one of the things that we're working on at the moment.
1: Got it. Okay. And this is all in Texas. So um, are you seeing, you know, Texas, obviously it's been a great place to do business. And um, the story is there from a macro standpoint uh, popular, you know, migration trends, et cetera. Um, one thing I hear about investing is in Texas is the property taxes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think they're reevaluated every year. Have you had, yeah. r- what are some challenges that you've had with that? And has that kind of forced you to rethink anything or, or, or what?
0: Not necessarily. I mean, I'm sitting here on May 2nd and, and I haven't had a chance yet this morning to go search the um, appraisal district websites to see whether or not they posted values over the weekend when I was oh, out boy. of town. But, um, you know, obviously, yeah, the property taxes here are high. It varies a lot from county to county as to how closely they're monitored and how hard they tend to hit you. Um, A couple of nice things about Texas is that um, while it is reevaluated every year, it is a non-disclosure state. So unless somebody opens their mouth to CoStar, the tax authority probably doesn't know exactly what it is that you paid. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't round up and guess at some pie in the sky number, so that you have to get them it down to at least what you paid and walk in with the closing statement that 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 trick definitely happens. Um, But it really just kind of varies a decent bit from from county to county as far as how things um, get hit. And then there's also in Texas, um, you're required to be a fair and equal appraisal. So there's always a, a large protest process that goes through every single year and kind of depending on how, where your property shakes out relative to some others, oftentimes there can be reductions because oftentimes the properties that transact get hit harder. But if you can prove that an equivalent property that's down the street that perhaps didn't transact was given a lower assessment that, you know, has some merit as well. Um, oftentimes there's a, there's oftentimes it's even litigated though, after kind of board approval. So, um, We were very fortunate on two of our properties recently, just got a, between the two of them, uh, almost a $300,000 refund from last year's property taxes. So that was kind of nice to add a little cushion back to the bank account.
1: There you go. Yeah. Or distribution. Um, So uh, in terms of the asset class of multifamily, it looks like you're buying a lot of like class B type of assets.
0: Yeah. Historically, we've done a lot of 80s stuff, um, a little bit of 70s here and there. Um, but have really kind of moved into some newer assets lately, um, starting a little over a year ago, but, um, some properties that were kind of late nineties, early two thousands. We've got a couple kind of in that 2008 range that we've been able to acquire recently. Um, still buy some in the eighties vintage stuff, but generally speaking, making sure that those are in really good areas, um, you know, that are very kind of landlocked, can't develop, you know, where you're really going to see some appreciation, um, and also where we can go in and kind of, we're really good at the, at the renovation piece. So um, since that's been kind of one of our focuses, oftentimes those older properties now probably won't be held quite as long as some of the the newer stuff that we're getting. That's more in that 2008, 2009 vintage. Um, so I, so I don't know what is a class B property this, these days, because, you know, it was always in that 20 to 30 years old and now they're all 40 years old. And I think we still call them class B, but um, and then, you know, I think everybody still thinks everything in the 2000s was an A and well, those are mm-hmm. about 20 years old now too. So um,
1: yeah.
0: anyway, always hard to know exactly what definitions we're playing under, but
1: yeah. <laughs> um, and what type of, has your, uh, it sounds like your risk profile changed a little bit or you're just, it sounds like you've learned and we're learning too, from some of the older properties, you might not want to keep them long-term CapEx. So it sounds like you learned from that transitioning into larger, you know, newer properties um,
0: transitioning to some newer stuff yeah
1: yeah but with that might come a reduction in returns so how are you unless you haven't seen that are you targeting the same returns what
0: we're really still ones? targeting same returns now I think it's I mean we have dramatically exceeded our targets in a lot of the things that we've done historically um, you know some are a little closer to target but a lot of them have done much much better than target so I think there will definitely be some tightening to target to some degree, but at the same time, we're seeing some pretty incredible rent growth at the moment um, that I think will continue to really help support those returns. Um, Even if we get some cap rate expansion, I mean, everything that I underwrite, we always underwrite a decent bit of cap rate expansion. Um, It's just, it's really low right now. um, And I've done this for years and always underwritten some cap rate expansion and it hasn't happened yet, but I think at some point it's going to, and Um, definitely want to make sure that that kind of cushion is is built into the numbers that we're looking at when we're actually evaluating. Yeah.
1: Right. And to that point, the cap rate expansion, obviously, um, we're in an interest rate rising environment. So how are you, you know, protecting yourself, your investors, mitigating risk from the financing side? Um, What are you guys, you know, taking, what type of loans are you taking out now? Obviously, there's a lot of bridge debt the past couple of years. Um, Still, still is out there. Uh, You can still do it. um, But I just, Curious to see what you're what you're looking at.
0: Sure. Well, we've been, we've had some fantastic lending experiences, some of which are a little hard to come by right at the moment. Um, but we were fortunate to have some fixed rate through insurance companies and and local banks um, previously that actually had some good exit flexibility with them as well. Um, that was always one of the the biggest risks I tried to avoid was getting the long term fixed rate debt when that didn't coincide with the business plan because you only have to pay a several million dollar exit penalty once before you learn that that was not a whole lot of fun and you'd rather not do it again. Um, so even though in that time we were actually able to get, you know, it was actually the buyer that paid off the the exit fee so that they could put their own bridge debt on it. Um, that definitely, that was definitely something that was very eye-opening. Um So right now, there is a lot of fixed rate um, or floating rate uh, debt fund type financing out there, trying to find ones that are really good to work with. Uh, The biggest thing I've seen right now in fixed rate debt is that they are underwriting kind of the full potential yield curve or the full forward yield curve as as it's being projected right now, plus some extra cushion. So um, while interest rate increases are scary- Yeah, I mean, 22, well, and even through 23 and 24, a lot of the fixed rate stuff is is getting kind of be sky high at the moment. So I think in many ways, as long as you make sure you stress test everything that you can handle those interest rate increases, it seems like at the moment, there is still some advantage on the floating side, especially if it's something that you're planning on executing some sort of an improvement in that would make you want to do some sort of a recapitalization or refinance or sale in that kind of two to three year range. At the moment, that still seems to make make sense, even though there is obviously there's always some risk to it, no matter what side of it you're on. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Last thing you want to happen is take a bridge loan, a high leverage. And then, you know, you do okay on your business plan, you go to refinance and whoops, I need to do a capital call. That's the last thing. Yeah,
0: no, that that would not be good. We've been very (laughs) fortunate to never have to be anywhere close to a capital call. So that is awesome. That's a very good thing. Um, But yeah, definitely watching those leverage points really analyzing kind of what you think you can get on, the, on a refinance or sale to make sure that that actually makes sense and that you're not going to get stuck uh, on the exit. On awesome. that.
1: Yeah, for sure, Kim. Well, this is a great conversation. Really loved chatting with you, learning more about you and your business. Uh, how can my audience find you?
0: Um, sure. They can email invest at exppg.com. Um, that's Probably the best way that'll get you in touch with Amanda, who is our director of investor services. But also, um, she is is very very well connected within the organization, and so if it has anything to do, even with material sourcing that we might be able to be helpful with, or property management side, general questions about philosophy or anything else, she will know exactly uh, how to get a hold of the person that can help
1: appropriately. So, awesome. Well, Kim, thank you so much for coming on our show today. If you liked what you heard and/or saw, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. It will help. Kim and myself get our message out to a greater audience. So we really appreciate that. And thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me.